From sly celebrity endorsements on social media to misleading green marketing gambits to phony third-party certifications, the Federal Trade Commission is looking forward to a busy year in making sure marketers don't use deception to take in gullible consumers. For a look ahead, I spoke with Tom Paul, acting director of the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection. One of the things that we have focused on as part of our overall consumer protection activities is uh, the prevalence of unfair deceptive acts or practices that occur in a lot of social media and other forms of online advertising. Uh, A lot of new techniques are being used online, and we're really trying to make sure that the use of these techniques does not cause harm to consumers. And uh, I think the the best example of that is some of the work that we have been doing with influencers and and the products that they are pitching uh, in an online environment. What are the unique problems of social media and how do you find out what's going on given the vastness of the activity there? Very good questions. A a lot of what we are looking at is is looking at Influencers, basically people who have a following online who will depict a product or service as part of the uh, a part of their activities that they are showing on social media. Frequently, these influencers are getting paid for uh, including the product or service and what they're showing to their followers. Uh, our main concern is that. If they are getting paid and consumers don't know about it, consumers may give more weight to uh, to the the representations about the product that they are seeing uh, in the influencer communication than they would otherwise. And so, really, consumers could be deceived if they don't know that a celebrity is getting paid to have a handbag or drive a particular type of car or drink a particular uh, beverage. And so what we've been doing is uh, gradually trying to get the message out to influencers um, that they need to make these kind of disclosures to consumers. We've done it through a number of techniques. We've put out guidance for influencers. We started by sending educational letters to influencers to tell them they need to make these disclosures followed that with warning letters. And then last year, we brought our first lawsuit against an influencer who didn't disclose uh, the uh, the payment aspect of, of, their, um, of the product that they were representing. Uh, and so we are very committed to making sure that influencers and other celebrities who appear online who are featuring products or services and are getting paid for it are letting consumers know that that payment is occurring. Is there a certain threshold at which it becomes a concern of the FTC? I'm thinking of a certain ugly dog, you know, and it has about 100,000 followers on one of the social media things. What if I have only 10 people following versus 100,000? Where do you how do you know when someone becomes an influencer? That's a very good question. I mean, I think from a legal perspective, uh, it, it doesn't matter how many followers you have to make it a uh, violation to uh, deceive people that you are um, that you are not getting paid when you in fact are. Um, certainly, when we try to figure out which influencers to send warning letters to or which influencers that we may want to take law enforcement action against, we're trying to find the. Influ- the influencers or others who are uh, making these kind of claims who have the largest following so that we can provide the greatest consumer protection 
uh, going forward. So as a matter of law, it doesn't matter how many followers you have, but as a matter of how we approach it and who we decide to um, take action against, it may matter a lot how, how uh, big a following they have. And how do these particular followers come to the attention of the FTC? Do you sit around looking at social media and looking for people, or is it mostly tip-offs? Uh, a bit of both. Most of our, you know, I can't speak to the specifics of how we have started individual investigations, but sometimes we get complaints from uh, consumer advocacy groups on these topics. Sometimes consumers themselves will learn that an influence has been paid and report that to us. Uh, sometimes we hear it from other sources. But regardless of how we learn about it, once we find out about um, these activities, we will take it up with the influencers and uh, figure out what's the, the appropriate tool, whether it's an education letter, warning letter, or bringing a lawsuit to deal with uh, the law violations we discover. We're speaking with Tom Paul. He's acting director of the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection. And a related area is endorsements that happen online and those can equally look like they're objective or create organizations that appear to be objective but are really commercial situations. Right. That is something that we have seen more and more of in the online environment. The FTC has historically gone after people who have used, for example, fake seals to seals of approval from organizations to promote their products. We've been seeing a lot more of that occurring in the online environment. We see um, uh, folks who are using seals from made-up associations, or uh, sometimes it's themselves that they are conferring their own certificate of approval as to uh, a product. And so we've been very active in bringing cases against those kind of seals because we do recognize that many consumers who are unfamiliar with products when they go online and they see a seal of approval that looks like it's from some third party or for someone who's independent saying this product has particular features, um, that consumers may be deceived by that. So we've been bringing some of those cases to send a very strong message to folks who may be considering using such deceptive seals that you really need to use legitimate independent third-party seals of approvals for your products um, if you're going to put seals on your website. Cybersecurity has become a pretty potent area for a lot of federal agencies dealing with themselves and with the public. And with some of these celebrated breaches that have happened over the past several years, how do you decide when this is negligence or an error that's actionable on the part of a corporation versus the best possible cybersecurity system with simply no match for really determined hackers? That's a very good question. Um, our standard as a matter of law is that companies have to use uh, reasonable practices and procedures to protect the information that they have in their possession. Um, as you can imagine, whenever you have reasonable as a standard, um, you need some greater articulation to understand what exactly that means. And so we've tried through a number of different measures to get guidance out to the industry to say, um, you need to look at things like what type of data it is, um, how accessible it is, what kind of computer system you have, what kind of protections people in the industry usually uh, put in place to determine what's reasonable. I mean, we, we recognize that... Um, 
that there there inherently are risks because there are hackers who are trying to get at the data that small businesses have. Uh, we want to use a reasonableness standard because we recognize that um, we're trying to strike the right balance between making sure companies do um, enough to protect data but not spend money unnecessarily to try to protect data. But how that plays out in an individual case can be very, very um, specific related to the type of information, the size of the entity, what kind of processes they have. So really what we've been focused on through a lot of our activities is to try to get the message out as to what kind of considerations businesses should go through, what they should be thinking about and trying to figure out what's reasonable. It's particularly a big concern when it comes to small businesses. You know, a lot of larger businesses that we deal with on data security issues are fairly sophisticated. They have an idea of what data security measures they should take. They don't always take them, but frankly, most of them are sophisticated enough to know what they should be doing. What's a larger concern or a large concern is that a lot of small businesses really lack the sophistication to know what sort of things they should be doing. So a lot of what we have been trying to do at the FTC is engage with the small business community, and we've done a uh, half dozen roundtables in the past year where we've gone throughout the country, met with the small business community, and said to them, what do you need us to try to address about data security so that you will know what sort of things you should be thinking about and what you should be doing. And we intend to continue to do that because we do recognize that, you know, putting out something which is a reasonable standard, inherently people will want more information about what that means. And so we've been trying to do it, especially focusing on what we can do to help small businesses. Now, some of these marketing cases have been elevated to criminal cases involving multiple agencies. I guess maybe the the poster child for that was the Volkswagen deal over the last couple of years involving the Justice Department, the EPA, the Federal Trade Commission, so many. At what point does a particular item, a particular action, become a multi-agency deal, and, and who initiates that? It can come from either ourselves or from our law enforcement partners in terms of who initiates it. Um, as a As a fundamental condition, we have to take a look at all of us are enforcing particular statutes, and so the conduct involved must violate a statute the FTC enforces as well as violates a statute that uh, one of our law enforcement partners is is um, enforcing. How that comes about, sometimes our law enforcement partners raise uh, uh, the idea of proceeding jointly with us. Sometimes we raise it with them. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, sort of ongoing relationships amongst law enforcement agencies where we are talking to each other and figuring out the most efficient way of bringing cases. Uh, one good example is we bring many, many fraud cases where we work with um, groups of state attorney generals who will also bring cases, and uh, we proceed at the same time on the same topic, uh, in part because we send a stronger message to the industry, but also in part because it gets us more um, exposure for the actions we're taking, which is very powerful in, in saying to consumers, look, um, you know, the FTC and let's say the states or the FTC and let's say the FCC are proceeding together on a case. And for that reason, um, it really is something that uh, government-wide you should pay more attention to. And we try to use that to, um, uh, we try to leverage that to see if we can get consumers to focus more on the uh, conduct and, and uh, 
so that they can be aware and not become victims in the first place. And health claims seem to remain a staple of the FTC. I guess that goes back to the first thing that was ever advertised in human history. And has the Internet... I mean, you look at any Internet site and these remainder ads pop up for, you know, drink vinegar and you lose weight or eat blueberries or whatever the case might be. We all see them. What is new and different? How is this being magnified, the phony health claims in the modern tech era? Well, I think some of it is... I would guess that most consumers are exposed to far more ads than they once were. You know, usually people, you know, when I when I was growing up, people would go through the day and you know, you'd watch uh, television at night and that's probably most of the ads you saw. I probably saw some some ads in magazines and the like. But, you know, in in the world we live in today where people are either, you know, looking at their um, computers or looking at their smartphones, um, accessing the internet through those through those um, uh, mechanisms, you're exposed to ads all the time everywhere. And so I think there's just far more advertising exposure that you're seeing. And so that's something that we are we are focused on. Some of the techniques have changed. Um, I think some of the techniques involving, uh, for example, the influencers that we talked about earlier, I think is something that's far more prevalent online because it works much better in an online environment than it would have historically in, let's say, a print ad or a direct mail piece. Um, So you see some techniques online that um, operate differently. Um, But the core of the claims, the core deception, especially the ones that we pursue involving fraud and quasi-fraud activities, uh, frankly, I don't think the types of claims and misrepresentations have changed all that much. It has more to do with, I think, the prevalence of ads and some of the techniques that are used. But, you know, a a bogus uh, claim for a diet supplement made 25 years ago is probably being the same kind of claim is being made today on the internet. It's just consumers may see it more frequently. Um, more consumers may see it because of the reach of the internet, um, but also there may be some different techniques used. But fundamentally, the notion of deceptive claims, health claims being used to pitch products hasn't changed, and we're going to continue to vigorously go after those kind of claims. We're speaking with Tom Paul, acting director of the Federal Trade Commission's Bureau of Consumer Protection, and looking at the blog post that was recently put up, and pretty pretty good uh, light-hearted way of approaching some serious matters, by the way. You mentioned some of the items that the FTC will be looking at as new technology comes into society, in particular connected cars and self-driving cars. What what are you looking at there and what are you doing? Yeah, a lot of connected cars, the FTC's main focus is on privacy. You know, as you can imagine, privacy and data security. You know, when you imagine if your car is connected to the internet, uh, your automobile will be transmitting information to others over the internet. So we need to make sure that uh, that transfer of information is secure. And um, as I mentioned earlier, the standard is reasonable data security standards have to be applied to make sure that consumers' information is protected in that environment. So that's really our focus in looking at connected cars is data security, perhaps depending upon what the comp- the uh, auto companies or others say about the information that's being collected and how it's used. There may be privacy issues as well, but it's prim- primarily for us, the privacy and data security concerns. There are a lot of other issues, for example, safety concerns with self-driving cars, but that's more the province of other federal agencies where we're really looking at um, those kind of issues from a data 
security and privacy perspective. Sure. Now people don't even go to the bathroom without their smartphones anymore, and so they don't certainly don't drive anywhere without their smartphones. Do self-driving or autonomous or these future smart types of cars bring additional data about people and their movements that they that uh, the bad guys already can't glean from their cell phone data? I think I think there's there's the possibility of that. Um, I mean, some of it, obviously, if you've got your smartphone in your car, you would have to, uh, it would have to be on and connected for, for example, someone to track you. Um, some of the tracking with um, cars may, uh, may be always on or more, more prevalent data about um, your location may be broadcast. Um, I mean, the other thing that from what we know so far of what some of the information that will be uh, collected, could be collected about auto use, some of it is how fast the car is driving, um, how quickly you stop, your locations, a lot of those kind of things. It's not clear to me that a a smartphone in a car would capture all of the same data. Um, But this is an area, too, where I think what exactly, what information is collected when someone is driving in a connected car is still a work in progress. The industry is trying to figure out um, what they can collect, what they want to collect, how it can be used. Is it going to be used by auto companies? Is it going to be used by insurance companies? Is it going to be used by other folks? And so a lot of the type of information that is being collected is is still um, to be determined. But I think that there is the possibility that uh, the information collected may go beyond what someone could collect simply by having a smartphone on in the car. And I see two other items coming within your radar, and that is artificial intelligence and blockchain, very much the new things for the IT community. What is the FTC's angle on those particular technologies? A lot of what we're doing at this point is um, doing research and policy development to try to figure out what kind of consumer-facing issues may arise from the use of blockchain, artificial intelligence, and the like. And so it's sort of our long-term law enforcement strategy is to understand these technologies, risks they pose to consumers, and what may be the best thing for us to do to make sure that the market and the use of these techniques um, evolves in a way that is is beneficial and not harmful to consumers. That being said, you know, a lot of the sort of things that are um, the flavor of the moment in the public eye, we know from long, hard experience that they can be um, uh, topics that scammers try to exploit to harm consumers. Um, for example, cryptocurrencies are very hot in the marketplace and in the news today. It's exactly the sort of thing where one would anticipate that scammers would look at some of those things that are really in the public consciousness and try to exploit them by building scams on top of them. So we're trying to understand what some of these technologies are in part so we can try to see what we need to do as a matter of policy to um, promote consumer welfare, but also because we are very cognizant of the fact that scammers try to look at these new technologies, exploit consumers, and scam them in connection with them, especially given that a lot of these newer technologies can be complicated, can be difficult for your ordinary consumer to understand, 
and a lot of times that ignorance is exploited um, by scammers. Tom Paul is the acting director of the Federal Trade Commission's Bureau of Consumer Protection. Find a link to more information and to this interview at federalnewsradio.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to all of our interviews at iTunes or Podcast One.